Hello and welcome to the Walking in Our Shoes podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to showcasing real journeys through our adolescent inpatient wards at Signet Hospital Sheffield. This podcast series is co-produced by some of the young people in our service, as well as some of the parents and carers. The intention behind this series is to showcase the reality of what an inpatient stay on an adolescent ward is like. During each of these episodes, I will be joined by some of the young people from our wards, from some of the parents or carers or some key staff members. The information in these episodes may be useful for young people and their families who may be close to an admission to hospital, or for those who have recently been admitted. The series may also be useful for the wider professional network that works with us in the community. It is hoped that the function of these episodes will also combat some of the stigma that is associated with mental health and particularly associated with being an inpatient in a mental health hospital. Welcome to episode six of the Walking in Our Shoes podcast. My name is Seb and I'm a consultant clinical psychologist and the head of psychology here at Signet Hospital Sheffield, as well as a national psychology lead across all of CAM services. In the last episode, episode five, we heard about co-production and how young people can get involved in co-producing their care whilst in hospital. In this episode, we're focused on the role of the Responsible Clinician, or RC, the Mental Health Act and the rights of a young person when they are admitted to hospital. To do this, I'm joined by three guests. I'm joined by Vika, who's a responsible clinician on Pegasus Ward. I'm joined by two of the young people who are also on Pegasus Ward, Emil and Nick. So to start off, I just want to let's do some introductions. Um, so I mean, I've already I've already introduced you as well. <laughs> so let, let, let's start off with some introductions. So Vika, do you want to say hi? Yeah, so I'm Vika and I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist and I work at Pegasus Ward and of course I'm a responsible clinician, which is why I'm here. <laughs> Thanks. And Emil, do you want to just say hi and, and a little bit about how, how long you've been on Pegasus Ward? Hi, my name's Emil. I've been on Pegasus Ward for about a month now. Thank you. And Nick? Hi, my name's Nick. I'm 16 and I've been on Pegasus Ward for about three months. Perfect. So to start off today, um, I wanted to ask the, the two of you, first of all, so Nick and Emil, kind of your view about what the role of a responsible clinician is, so what your understanding of that is, um, and then we'll kind of move into thinking a little bit about the Mental Health Act and kind of your understanding of that as well. Um, but to start off with, um, I don't know kind of which one of you wants to, to answer first. Um, so, um, Emil, I don't know whether you want to kick off. So what, what's your understanding of the role of a responsible clinician? Um, so the responsible clinician is just like the professional who's in charge of your care. So they're responsible for like, a bunch of different things like they can grant you leave from hospital um, and they can also like discharge you and many other things like that yeah so they've got kind of a a role in some of the I guess the, the functions which we'll come on to under the mental health act in a little sec um Vika I'm going to throw over to you now as 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 one of those people who is a responsible clinician mm-hmm. yeah um what's What's your understanding of what you do? Well, I think you're kind of really similar to what you said. So it does feel probably like um, responsible clinicians make the big decisions, but actually we do it with the team. And a big part of our job is to listen to what the team have to say and to put it all together and think, okay, these are the next steps. And that might be to do with the Mental Health Act, but even um, young people who are not detained under the Mental Health Act still have responsible clinician as well in hospital. And... For you guys as as young people on the ward, um, I suppose I'm kind of interested in in your response to that. So, does it feel like um, when you know when you're in meetings and, and ward rounds and 
um, decisions are being made, does it feel like it's um, decisions are made with the, the whole team contributing to that, or does it feel like it's a it's kind of one person doing that? Um, yeah, I think it's the whole team. So we mentioned that one of the functions of the responsible clinician is to do with the mental health act. Um, I guess my question said to both of you is what what's the mental health act and what what, what why is that important in a hospital setting? Um, well, you can get detained in the mental health act. Um, if um, they don't believe that you can keep yourself safe, or um, yeah, okay. And what does what does that mean being detained under the mental health act? Um, basically, you have the right to stay at the hospital because there are different ways in which you can be detained, right? So there are different sections that you can you can be on. Um, Emil, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the, the different sections of the mental health act and what they mean? So most people, when they're admitted, will probably be admitted on a section two, which is for, like, assessment. So that lasts for up to 28 days, in which time, like, the team will, like, get to know a bit more about you and decide whether they want to, like, make an application for assessment for section three. And section three is for treatment, which can last up to six months and can be renewed. Yeah, so the... Often, I think you're right, often when people first come into hospital, it's section two, isn't it? And is there anything you want to add to that, Vika, in terms of things that might happen on the, the first guess, 28 days when people are in hospital? Well, I think, as Emil said, it's about getting to know people. And um, sometimes, actually, you don't need a section to last that long. So just to say that the sections can be finished at any time, that um, certainly the RC can rescind them at any time. But again, usually with, with the support of, of you know the team and, and the young person engaging as well with their care. And section three, Emil, you said was for up to six months. And I guess it's a, just picking up on what Fika said, it's an up to six months. It can be rescinded at any point during that period. Because I think for, for some young people, I imagine hearing the six month thing can be quite a, a daunting thing, thinking that people might have to stay in hospital for that length of time. Um, I don't know whether that's kind of anything which um, you guys have, have thought about in terms of kind of, obviously you guys have both been under section whilst you've been under hospital um does the length of time kind of weigh on your mind like that how long can a sections last for yeah definitely when i was first section three i honestly was a bit scared but um my discharge day is soon so um and emil have you had something similar when you've had kind of thoughts about sections um yeah i'd say so yeah there's section four but i don't know if that's something you want to i mean there is section four i mean we can Do you want to say what Section 4 is? So a Section 4 is an emergency section, so it only requires one doctor. Mm -hmm. And an amp. And an amp, yep. And it allows them to keep you safe in an emergency yeah I think it's so it's when there's a difficulty getting a second doctor um I have to say in all my years of work I've still never done a section four I, I learned about it um but I've still never done one because usually you do get the second doctor and I think it's really there would have to be something perhaps in a very remote area where it's very difficult to get someone for the purposes of safety so not not a very commonly used one but you're right it is in the act you so I suppose what I'm going to ask is what happens if you disagree with being on a section um because presumably one of the reasons why people get put on the sections in the first place is because they're not necessarily agreeing that they need to be in hospital right um 
so what happens if you disagree with or you want to kind of challenge your section how you how would you go about doing that and can you do that yeah you can um ask for a tribunal where um there's a judge a doctor and they re-decide whether you whether it is necessary for you to remain under section um and if not then they remove your section so how would you go about applying for tribunal what would you do um, you write a letter to the hospital managers, I think. Yeah. Um, and then they organise it. And is there anything you want to add from, I suppose, a clinician's point of view in terms of how tribunals work and what the role of them is and the function of them in terms of, yeah, the mental health act and, and, and for the young people on the ward? Well, they're independent. So the people who come have nothing to do with the hospital. Uh, and as you said, that they're meant to review whether it's needed now. Um, and... That obviously, if it's a section two, the tribunal can happen quite fast. But if it's section three, sometimes there's a little bit of a wait um, for the tribunal if you apply for it. And I think, yeah, one of the key things for for me is that they're independent of the the hospital, so they they're not just kind of people that work here and would necessarily agree with just because of the fact that they work here, they're independent. And their job is to independently review whether someone is you know needs detaining. So it's kind of a safeguard in that respect. Um, linked to that because I think what we're talking about now is people's I guess rights on their section um how m- I'm, I'm hoping the answer to this is yes but I'm assuming you're aware of your rights on the section yeah. yep. you're both nodding as you're saying that which is good um what do you know what they are so what what are so I know you'll have times where you're you, you go through your rights with the with the nursing team on on shift and um, to make sure that everyone's kind of aware of what yeah, what they can do and um, what the section means. Um, from your perspective as, as young people on the ward, what, what are your rights on the section, either two or three? Um, so you have the right to appeal your section to the tribunal, as we've already discussed. That's right. Vika, is there anything you want to comment on? Well, I guess kind of your right for advocacy as well, um, if you wanted to specifically like a mental health advocate um, is there as well. And have either of you been in touch with the advocates on the ward? A little bit. Do you know what they do? So they're just kind of like an independent professional who's like trained in the Mental Health Act and is there to like make sure that your views are given to those that like should be receiving it and like so they can represent you in like meetings and so and that kind of thing. Absolutely. I think it's for people who... Well, I mean, anyone can access it, really, but it's it's to make sure that sometimes people might feel that it's difficult to, to speak up kind of when they're in meetings, whether it's in a, a ward round or a CPA or a tribunal, or and it's to make sure that your voices are, are heard, right, so that they can meet with you independently. And they can, they, they, again, they don't work for us. They don't work for, for any hospital. They work independently. And it's to make sure that you can make sure that your viewpoint is heard by the professionals that you're that are around you um yeah so that's that's advocacy services um i'm just thinking as well about so going back to talking about the role of the rc and, and, and section sections and the mental health act um i think one of the things you mentioned at the start emil was section 17 leave um as one of so how does something like that work how does section 17 leave work nick um, so basically, first you get assessed to make sure that it's safe for you to access this leave, um, 
and he was basically where you can leave the hospital for that amount of time um, usually escorted by a staff member or if they feel you don't really have much risk then they allow you to go out by yourself um, but yeah and sometimes like, especially if someone was to abscond um, they would probably they probably wouldn't be able to have as much leave yeah, I think, I mean, I think especially if someone was to abscond and particularly put themselves at risk, I think that's something which would be kind of factored into any kind of future risk assessments, wouldn't it? Um, so how are, we're talking about Section 17 leave and, and risk assessments happening kind of before leave goes ahead to make sure it's it's safe, I guess. How are those risk assessments done on the wards? So in the end, the granting leave is the responsibility of the responsible coalition however they discuss it with the, your whole team and everyone agrees well we think they should have this leave and oh they've got this risk so maybe we're not going to let them do this and, and do you have much of a say in terms of contributing to your risk assessments or contributing to that discussion around leave and kind of what leave you want um i would say so but the MDT, if they don't agree with your... The MDT is like the team of the people. Um, and if they don't agree with your opinion, then they'll like uh, vocalise that they disagree with that. Um, yeah, and, it, and and sometimes I guess people will agree and sometimes people won't agree. Um, and sometimes people within the MDT will disagree with each other. And that, yeah, that, that's that okay happens. too. Um, and I think it's... It's about having that kind of open discussion about people's risk and pe- why people are in hospital. And also families are part yeah. of that because sometimes uh, parents might have, or carers might have a different view as well about risks and we like to take their view into account because often they're part of leave if it's leave home as well. Vicky, you want, we can say something more now about kind of how we might, I guess, manage risk in, in general. Can if we be if, thinking about kind of what we, how that's managed kind of whilst people are under kind of section, if we need to manage risk and what things that... Sometimes we do because we're having that conversation about risk and links to Section 17 leave, so sometimes that might be thinking about whether that leave's appropriate. Um, but I guess there might be other things we do to manage risk while people are in hospital as well. Yeah, and we sometimes use mental health, obviously, if they're things that aren't safe to have, um, that if a young person is, is using them in risky ways, so sometimes about limiting some of the items, for example, or it might be kind of where they go in the hospital if, if that's not safe. Um, so there's different, I guess the mental health act just allows us to to limit some things if it's needed, but also obviously, you know, return them when it's safe to do so. And always working on a plan to make sure we get to a place where young people have all their belongings, that they're able to go out and leave and everything's about planning. So if there is risk now, how do we get to a place where there is less risk so that these things can be kind of more like they usually are, I guess? Yeah. I know we've heard in, in other episodes of, of this kind of podcast series about kind of how young people can kind of get involved in, in kind of planning those those things. So how people are going to co-produce kind of care plans and, and think about kind of reducing restrictions and all of that. And I, I guess that kind of links into kind of what you're saying, doesn't it, about um, trying to get people, give people the most freedom I guess whilst making sure people are, are safe yeah safe enough and, and I guess that's the whole point of the mental health act is it, it we must be de- depriving you of liberty in some way if we're using it and um, therefore it's just kind of making sure that it's done in a legal way that's appropriate to what's happening so 
I wonder whether um, one one thing we haven't talked about in terms of mental health act and using the mental health act so far is um, holding powers and what can happen sometimes when because people come in informally um, and sometimes we might need to to use the mental health act for, for something. So I don't know whether because you kind of want to explain kind of how they they can be used. Yeah, so holding powers are slightly different and they're really to allow um, for a mental health act assessment to happen. And they're really used if about if a young person wants to leave, for example, and we're just really, really worried. And we've been talking about risk um, to yourself, but actually there's also risk to others potentially and the mental health act can be used if for whatever reason your, your mental health problem means that it might be a risk to other people as well. And if the risk assessment <clears throat> shows that actually someone is either likely to be a risk to themselves or possibly to others then a holding power can be used just to get make sure that the risk is contained in that moment they're usually quite short so nurses can decide to do that and that's a, a very short holding power of a few hours and then obviously a doctor's holding power lasts a little bit longer so up to 72 hours but the main purpose of it is to make sure that a full assessment happens because actually to make sure that mental health act is appropriate the use is appropriate you do have to have two doctors really who are appropriately trained as well as an AMP, an approved mental health professional, because it is a big thing. And, you know, obviously you both said it's, um, you know, it can be a bit scary thinking about those things and it's important that it's done in the right way. And I think at, at this point, I think we've, we've kind of covered the main points of kind of what the mental health act is, what the, the function of the, the RC is. And we've spoken a little bit about kind of advocacy services and kind of what, how they can be, be useful. Um, for young people on the board. Before we finish up for for today and today's today's episode, um, is there anything else which any of you want to kind of add about kind of any of those those bits that we've talked about so far? Did we cover like the like appealing to like hospital managers and that? We haven't talked about that, but we can absolutely talk about it. So yeah, how how would that work? What what does appealing to hospital managers entail? So you can. If you don't agree that you should be on a section anymore or you would like to be informal, you can ask to meet with the hospital managers who will then decide whether you still do need to be detained or whether you could be discharged or made informal. Is there anything you want to add to that? Usually um, the manager's uh, hearing happens if a section's been renewed, for example. There's certain times um, when you do get an automatic manager's hearing as well. Um, whether you kind of want one or not, so they because they've got to be sudden checks that if a section is ongoing that it's appropriate. Yeah, no, it's a good good point. I mean, that's mm-hmm. another one of the, I guess, one of the safeguards that are yeah. in place kind of within the mental health system. So there's, you've got the tribunal system and the the managers' hearings as well. Um, is there anything else you can think of that I might have missed? Nearest relative rights, or is that something else? A different mm-hmm. episode. No, I think that's something we should probably cover mm, yeah. here as well. Absolutely. I'm glad I'm glad we've got you. <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the nearest relative, what what yeah, what that means? And except there might be a, a strange term for people that aren't familiar with it. So the nearest relative is defined in the Mental Health Act and it's there's a long list of who will be your nearest relative, so it goes in order. I believe the highest is your partner. If you like, have a husband, wife, or a civil partner, and it goes down and down. So for most people, it'll probably be their parents will be their nearest relative. Mm-hmm. And if it if the if you're both your parents could be a nearest relative, it's whoever's the older one. 
and your nearest relative has some rights that no one else has, so they can object to you being placed on a section, and they can ask for you to be discharged from your section. Yeah, that's that, that's absolutely right, and I think it's um, it's in particular for section threes, yeah, um, where they've got that 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 right to kind of object to it or to to appeal it. They you can appeal section two as well, um, but you're right that the objection can only be for section three. Um, and if that happens, then uh, the RC has 72 hours to kind of respond to it in some way. So I, I guess I just wanted to finish up by thanking you, Emil and Nick, for, for taking part today and Tavika as well. Um, and kind of giving your perspectives on the Mental Health Act and kind of the, yeah, the role of responsible and advocacy services. Um, yeah, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Signet Cams podcast, Walking in Our Shoes. You can keep up with all the latest episodes on iTunes and Spotify. For more information about our CAMS services, please visit our website at www.signethealth.co.uk.